Our scripture reading this afternoon will begin in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 22. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the earth of, excuse me, belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his, lo- set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing." Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven." So far from the law of Moses. Now we'll turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 12. And there we'll read verses 1 through 7. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples, First, beware of the the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more than that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So far from... Luke, and then finally we'll turn to James chapter 1. James 1, and we'll read verses 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, 
Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So far, the reading of God's Word. The text for for the sermon this afternoon is the last part of the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And we'll be reading verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So far, our text. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we come now to the end of our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll notice the text that we just read from verses 9 to 14, with which the book closes, is not written by the preacher himself. Sort of an epilogue or an afterword, and it's written not by the preacher, but by the one who took it upon himself to set the preacher's words down in writing. It's the same person who introduced the book for us in verse 1, who tells us a little bit about who the preacher was and and so forth. Well, now he offers us some some final words of reflection. So the words of the preacher ended in chapter 12 exactly as they began in chapter 1. His first and his last words are, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As we saw last week, the book concludes uh, with a sobering picture of the impending reality of old age and after that death. It's a somber reminder, particularly to those of us who are living for this life, uh, to remember your Creator now, while you are still young, before those dark days come. This life is mist. It is vanity, hanging in the air, but for a moment. So now, just then, as the preacher has told us all that the end is coming for us all, the day will come when the silver cord is broken and the, and the golden bowl is uh, shattered. 
Well, now so the preacher himself goes silent. And his words are left here as a testimony to the man that once was there. And now the writer who who sets his words down, he offers us his last words of reflection. Now, before he takes us to the conclusion of the book, he reminds us of a few things concerning the nature of the book. In the first place, concerning the preacher himself. He says uh, he would have us know that besides being wise himself, the preacher also taught knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs, arranging them with great care. He searched to find the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. This is, this is a, a reminder for us that we might need at this time as we close the book. The preacher's words have sometimes challenged us, haven't they? Uh, sometimes they have a bit of an edge to them. Uh, sometimes we wonder whether he's not being perhaps a bit too careless with what he's writing. But the author here who, who commits, the writer here who commits the preacher's words to writing, he urges us to not be so quick to dismiss the preacher's words. He's not being reckless, uh, though it may feel that way, but he's actually choosing his words very carefully, he tells us. And on top of that, what he wrote is upright and true. It's neither impious nor irreligious. And in our desire to maintain that life is purposeful as we serve the Lord, we might chafe a little bit against what the preacher says, that all of life is vanity. And yet we must not forget, he's speaking here truthfully as he looks at this world from the perspective of under the sun, where life really is a mist. It's just not an overstatement. Where so many things that we pursue really are empty and vain. Uh, where good and evil do not always get their just reward here in this life, and where we truly cannot know the success or outcome of our labors. He's not being impious nor irreligious, but seeking to speak truth. He's been teaching us, in fact, that all along, that it's these very truths that ought to ultimately lead us to the fear of God. Uh, Moreover, the writer says, the words of the wise are like goads, and their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails. Uh, Goad uh, may not be something we're all familiar with, but it was uh, in that day a sharply pointed stick, which you would use to push uh, sheep or cattle along to guide them in the right direction. And part of its essential design is to cause pain. That's why it's sharp. It needs to hurt a little in order to be effective in turning the sheep from the wrong way to the right way. But its ultimate purpose is not merely to cause pain, but to preserve life, to lead the sheep in the direction that they need to go. Now, like sheep, we we can resent the words of the wise. We may be tempted to resist the words of the wise, but we're reminded they're given to us for our benefit. And he also says they're like firmly embedded nails. If they've served their purpose well, they will not have been merely passing thoughts, but will have taken hold of our lives and our hearts and embedded themselves in our minds to stay there for the rest of our lives to guide us in, in, the, in, in the course and direction of, of our lives. And ultimately, verse 11, he says, the words, uh, the words of true wisdom are given by one shepherd, namely God himself. Uh, This is the doctrine of inspiration, Uh, namely that the words of Scripture, even though they're written by many different people over many different centuries uh, in different cultures and circumstances, are still ultimately given to us by God Himself. It's His Spirit 
working in the hearts and the minds of the many different authors in Scripture that comes together holding the, the words of truth from Genesis to Revelation together in one book by one shepherd. So what the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, the writer wants us to know that about this book as well. This is Scripture. Even if it challenges us at times, and perhaps even speaks sometimes in a different tone than the rest of Scripture. This is the Word of God. The words of our one shepherd. Uh, Finally, as well, the writer uh, warns us, uh, or or perhaps we should say warns his son, that's who he's speaking to uh, in the first place. He gives a a warning about the reading of many books. Uh, Verse 12, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is weariness to the flesh. Now, besides this being a favorite verse of all high school students around exam times, uh, the writer is not complaining here about books in general or education in general. Uh, We've seen that Solomon himself was a very learned man. Uh, It was something he was widely praised and respected for. It's good to study. It's good to learn. Uh, It's good to seek to understand God's creation uh, to the best of, of our ability to study Scripture, to study history, uh, any other good educational pursuit. But there is a limit to the reading of books. What the writer here is warning us against uh, is a sort of philosophical pursuit, a pursuit of knowledge that does not begin with the fear of the Lord. What the preacher has called us to uh, in in all of these pages in Ecclesiastes, above everything else, is to, to stop trying to be wiser than God. It's above your pay grade. It's not given to you. Uh, it's a form of seeking to be in control when we seek to be wiser than God. The preacher has been calling us to stop striving to understand and control what God has not given to man to understand or control. To learn to embrace life as it comes to us from God and trusting ourselves into His hands, trusting that the one who gives us our life is the one who is good and will use those lives for good purposes. Uh, his warning here is, If you fail to take that to heart, to live your life entrusting yourself to the God who gives you each day, if you fail to do that, you'll end up spending your entire life trying to understand and explain and control your existence. Uh, To do what uh, what many in the uh, philosophical world are doing, to, to come up with a theory of everything. A theory that will explain our existence, uh, concocted by the wisdom of man. Well, he warns us, start down that road and there will be no end to the books that you read, to the debates that you partake uh, in, in college, uh, and it will never ever reach a conclusion. It will amount to weariness to the flesh and nothing more. Now think about it. How many philosophical fads have come and gone Each of them with hundreds, uh, sometimes thousands of students that poured themselves down that little rabbit hole uh, and it went nowhere in the end at all. It was a passing fad. 
Reminds us perhaps of what uh, the gospel or what the uh, book of Acts says about the citizens of Athens uh, in Acts 17. It says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's that's how you can spend your life looking for something new, trying to to hear something new, some new explanation, some new fad, which does nothing but weary your flesh. Or it's what the Apostle Paul says of certain people in, in 2 Timothy 3. He says, being led astray by various passions, they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And brothers and sisters, beware of any such philosophy. Any philosophy that says that questions are more important than answers. And be aware of any approach to wisdom that says dialogue is more important than truth. There are many who will spend their entire lives going down that road, uh, giving all of their intellectual gifts to asking questions without any real interest in actually finding the answers. And what it amounts to is weariness to the flesh. It happens in religious circles as well. Paul was familiar with the Jewish rabbinical tradition uh, that loved to debate uh, meaningless points of God's law. Sometimes the medieval scholastics were somewhat given to this as well, uh, debating things like how many angels can fit onto the head of a pin, uh, that, that sort of debates. And I'm sure we've all been to one or two Bible studies where uh, that sort of thing has, has happened. Uh, the writer warns us here against this. You can write books ad nauseum, and you'll never get any closer to the truth if you're not starting with the truth, uh, which is God Himself. It's weariness to the flesh. Life is meant to be lived, not to be analyzed. Uh, uh, Questions. Questions are good, but they exist for the sake of answers. Inquiry exists for the sake of knowledge. And God's words are not meant ultimately to be debated, but to be obeyed. The Apostle John uh, elsewhere warns us uh, against three particular seductions uh, that we are to be on guard against. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, That threefold danger has sometimes been compared to uh, what what Moses says about Eve when she was confronted with the, uh, the, the fruit with which Satan tempted her. And she saw that it was good for food. There's the lust of the flesh. A delight to the eyes, a lust, the, the lust of the eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise. Well, it's that last, that last seduction that the writer is warning us against. This desire to be wise on our own terms, without starting with the fear of the Lord and obedience to His commandments. The book here urges us not to go in that direction. Start with humility. Start with the fear of the Lord. Otherwise, you'll spend your entire life trying to be wise and getting nowhere, wearying your flesh, wasting the gift of life that God has meant for you to live here on earth under His love and favor. And so then we come to the conclusion, the end of the matter. The writer looks back on his journey, uh, where we've gone, and, and he says, Here is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God. Now, some commentators have uh, wrestled over, over this conclusion, have struggled to understand how can this be the preacher's final answer 
after all that has come before? How does this fit with the rest of the book, with that constant refrain that all is vanity? Could this really be how the preacher ends this book? Some commentators even suppose that maybe this is the work of some later writer, some pious believer, uh, trying to make the the book a little bit more palatable uh, to the rest of us. But if we've been reading this carefully, I hope we've been able to see that this conclusion is in fact the running theme throughout this entire book. It's what ties the whole book together. It's not only consistent with the theme of vanity, but it in fact follows from that conclusion. If all is vanity, then there is nothing better for man than to fear God and keep His commandments. Chapter 2, verse 24, There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from Him... Who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The whole setup of the book is fear God uh, and, and you will find wisdom, knowledge, and joy. You won't find everything that you desire on this earth but you will find wisdom and knowledge and joy as you entrust yourself to the Lord. But the one who does not fear Him will spend his life gathering and collecting only to ultimately lose it in the end. It's precisely because your life in this earth under the sun is a mist that the preacher's been calling us again and again to fear God. Chapter 3, verse 12, I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken from it. God has done it so that people would fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what is driven away. The whole purpose of the book as it confronts the vanity of life, the mist of life, is that it would drive us to fear God. Verse 7, When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Or chapter 7, verse 15, Do not be overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that not withhold your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, the preacher has never, uh, never been far from this theme that, that why do we need to see that life is vain so that we would be brought to a healthy, holy fear of God. And nor has the preacher ever lost sight throughout this book, uh, despite the mist, despite the obscurity, despite not knowing what comes after this life, the preacher has never lost sight of the fact that God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Uh, chapter 3, verse 22, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the, right, the, the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And of course, we saw that in our conclusion we looked at last week in, in chapters 11 and 12. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remember to fear God in the days of your youth. 
So it, it, it's really only the, the preconception of some modern readers that leads us to conclude that this conclusion in Ecclesiastes couldn't have been the preacher's point, that this must be some work of some later author. Now, the whole purpose has been to lead us away from ourselves so that we would be brought to the holy fear of God, that we would be taught to entrust ourselves to Him, to forsake the pursuit of man, or the fear of man and the pursuit of vain things, and to fear God alone. Now, some Christians might balk at this conclusion as well for a different reason, namely that the fear of God sounds like such a heavy thing, such a negative thing. Uh, Does that have any place in Christian vocabulary? After all, do not the Scriptures teach us uh, that in Christ the love of God uh, has been revealed and that perfect love casts out all fear? Well, such an objection really misunderstands not only the fear of God and what that means, but even more misunderstands what it is to love God. When the Scriptures speak of the fear of God, it's not some sort of servile fear. Uh, It's not a a fear of one who is under judgment uh, that only obeys because it's afraid of the consequences. No, the fear of God that the Scriptures commend in both Old and New Testament is a reverence for God that holds Him rightly in the highest esteem that bows before Him, that acknowledges uh, His holiness and our creatureliness, not to mention our sinfulness. The fear of God is the disposition before God that recognizes nothing matters more than that my life be right before God. Because He's the one who looks over me. He's the one who judges me. He's the one who saved me. And so nothing matters more than that I be right with Him. Since He sees all that I do, since He will be my judge, and since He is my Savior, I must be right before Him. Uh, In fact, when you read the Scriptures, you actually find that these two terms, the fear of God and the love of God, uh, far from being opposites, are actually intricately intertwined. You read, for example, Deuteronomy 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. There's a certain trembling and awe, a certain respect and reverence that we as creatures ought always to have before God, but even more as those who have been loved by God and forgiven by God. Uh, If we stand in His forgiveness and we know His love for us in Christ, that's all the more reason to hold Him with reverence and awe. Psalm 130, verse 4, With you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. We find throughout the New Testament as well then the same call to the fear of God. Uh, Luke 1, verse 50 is part of the song of Simeon. Uh, Simeon sings, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Uh, Acts 9, verse 31, speaking of the the brand new Christian church, says, "So, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Do you see how those two things are held together? 
The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit belong together. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, you hear God's love there, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Or 1 Peter 1, verse 7, we saw it when we worked through the letter of Peter. Uh, If you call on Him as Father, there again, you, you see His love. If you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The fact that we call upon God as Father does not negate our need to fear Him, but it is in fact the reason why we fear Him as we do, why we delight to fear Him. And we heard it as well in the words of the, of the Lord Jesus to His disciples, do not fear those who can only kill the body, but after that have nothing more than they can do. But I warn you, fear Him who after He is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. Now, saying that, there, there's a heaviness to that, isn't there? That fear Him who has authority to cast into hell. But what does Jesus say right after that? The very next verse, He says, Now, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are more of more value than many sparrows. Listen to those two verses together. Fear God, and therefore fear not. Fear God, therefore fear not. It's exactly what the preacher has been commending to us as well. A life of joy and gratitude flows from the fear of the Lord. Fear God, and that will drive out all of your other fears. The fear of death. The fear of loss. The fear of missing out. The fear of man. All these things lead to to, to empty striving, right? To chasing after the wind. The fear of God enables us to live confidently and boldly in a tumultuous and an uncertain world, knowing He upholds my cause. He carries me through this life. That's why we've been saying all along, the fear of God, this expression, the fear of God, is really synonymous with what we call faith. It's faith. It's the same thing. It's surrendering our life to Him. It's determining to live rightly before Him. It's trusting in His promises because He is a God who's trustworthy. It's no longer striving like those who do not know God to gain some sort of advantage for ourselves out of this life in disobedience to God, but trusting He will exalt me in His time and His way. Because I fear Him, I trust that He will uphold my cause. And so we should come to see then that this wisdom that the preacher sets before us in this book, it really is a timeless wisdom. It's not something that only belongs to the Old Testament age, but it is wisdom for all of life. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It's not because by keeping His commandments you can earn anything before Him or make yourself righteous before Him. No, the preacher's already uh, demolished that perspective. That's what pride does. It's what man-made religion does. No, we keep His commandments because they are good. Because by fearing Him, we've learned to see that He is good. And what He sets before us is good. It's what the Lord Jesus said as well. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom then. And it is the foundation for life. And this is where then we have to bring the Gospel in. Because you can't miss it 
Uh, One cannot appreciate or understand this book of Ecclesiastes without understanding the gospel and why the gospel matters for a joyful life. Uh, You cannot rightly fear God until you know God's grace towards you in Christ. Without that hope, God is only our judge. And even worse, God's only our enemy. Uh, We are condemned. Uh, It's only when you know the undeserved favor and love of God that you can finally begin to fear God as He ought to be feared. That you can really know Him and live before Him. Now when Solomon wrote this book, he, he had the gospel, but he had it under shadows. He had the temple and the sacrifices and the various ceremonies, and he understood how these pointed forward to a Redeemer. He understood the forgiveness of God. You see this in the Psalms of David, how how richly he understood the forgiveness of God, even under shadows. He understood that what those things proclaimed, that that God will redeem His chosen people uh, from their sins, that God will carry them into eternal life. But what Solomon understood by faith, working from shadows, uh, having to look forward, we now get to enjoy with so much greater clarity looking back at the redemption that's already been accomplished for us. We get to embrace this life with joy, knowing that Christ has walked the hard road before us in our place to carry the judgment of God away from us so that we can walk in the fear of the Lord with joy and gratitude. It's, uh, we, we who have been baptized into Christ and believe in Him and hold on to Him by faith, we experience this life already now as the beginning of eternal life. Now, for those who do not know Christ, this life is the closest to heaven they will ever be. And even, that, even in there, it's a long ways off because they live in darkness. They live enslaved to various passions and pleasures. It's full of emptiness and disappointment and striving after the wind. For those who are in Christ, this life is as close to hell as you'll ever get. And it's not even close. Because you get to go through this life, the joys and the adversities, with the knowledge of God's favor and love over you in Christ, and the Spirit's presence with you, strengthening you day by day. So, so while the final words of, of Ecclesiastes are abidingly uh, relevant for, for all ages on, on this earth, They're so much richer for us now who know with greater clarity uh, the love of God towards us in Christ. We get to fear God and keep His commandments with greater boldness, greater confidence than than any people before us ever could. So then what what now? Well, I hope that this book, as we reflect on its its teachings, uh, will be like a firmly embedded nail within our hearts. It's not just a passing thought. I hope that we'll not be able to run away from its sharp edges uh, as it challenges us to ask ourselves honestly, what am I chasing after? What am I striving for? What wind uh, still captivates my heart? What idols uh, am I still pursuing? One of the greatest fears in our age, uh, especially with all the wealth that we have and all the riches that that we get to enjoy uh, at our disposal, is the fear of missing out. How many people throw everything they have to avoid missing out? Young people in particular are so captivated by this fear, and I know it tugs at at my heart as well. What if I am missing out? You ask, missing out on what? It could be any number of things. Uh, The good life that comes with with riches. Uh, An exciting sex life. The opportunity to have children. 
uh, the career that you've always dreamed of, the education that you've always wanted to pursue, the opportunity to make the most of, of, of your youth that is quickly flying by. Whatever, whatever it is you're afraid of missing out on, sometimes we don't even know what we're afraid of, of missing out on, but we're still afraid that we're somehow missing out. Well, the bad news and the good news of Ecclesiastes is you are missing out. You are. And you will miss out. We all will. We don't have enough time in this short life, in this mist of a life, besides all the difficulties that confound this life, uh, we don't have enough time to live such a thing as a, as a fulfilled life. We speak often in those terms, and uh, that, that, that can make sense, but we can't live a fulfilled life on this side of eternity. Uh, life is too short. The end always comes too soon. You ask, why, how is that good news? Well, because in Christ, this life is only the beginning. To those who desire to live autonomously, far from God, chasing after idols, this life is all there is. With all of its frustrations and its strivings, uh, and this life ends with having to give an account to God for a life of not serving Him or loving Him or obeying Him and a lifetime of selfishness and idolatry. So David says in Psalm 16, verse 4, the, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. But to those who surrender to Him, who fear Him, who confess their sins to Him, and put their, their, their trust in the salvation that He has accomplished for them uh, in the cross of Christ, this life is only the beginning of eternity. You worried about missing out on travel? You've got an eternity on the new earth to explore, to see, to enjoy this earth. Uh, you're not missing out on any good thing. Especially because, quoting again from Psalm 16, as David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In other words, give me His love. Give me His favor. And I'm already not missing out on anything. I have the best thing. He says, He holds my lot. Therefore the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance has your life been marked by chasing after the wind have you been uh, trying all your life to climb up the ladder of success only to realize that that ladder has been leaning against the the wrong wall all along then turn to him now whether you're in your youth or your old age cry out to him Uh, lord you alone can make sense of my life can fix the brokenness You alone can replace all the empty things that I have been chasing after. Help me to start over. Help me to find freedom from idols. To find true joy and life and contentment in you through Christ. Enable me by your Spirit to live before you with a clean conscience and a pure heart so that everything I do and pursue in this life is an expression of my reverence for you. That's the prayer of, of the preacher for us as well. And it's my prayer for you as I leave this place as well. And in my few years here, it's been a, a huge joy for me to see the fear of God living in your hearts, uh, to see how God has given you that, that same joy and confidence in, in the midst of struggles and uh, hard times to nonetheless persevere with gratitude, with, with thankfulness. It's the fear of God that holds us together too, isn't it? As a body of believers, we often have different perspectives, different opinions, and yet it's our reverence for the Word of God that holds us together. How often have we seen that on council? Disagree, and yet we have the shared authority of the Word of God to which we go. It's an amazing blessing that that very few enjoy. 
As a preacher, it's been my particular joy to see that despite all of my own flaws, my own weaknesses, yet the preached word is still received with reverence. Not because I am so revereable, but because the word is so highly revered. You trust that there's one shepherd who gives you his word. The fear of God is also beautifully evident in many who have turned from sin, who've confessed sins that were hidden uh, and turned to God, who've fought against sin because of their fear and love for God. Fear of God is abundantly evident in the elderly in our midst. There's a a number of elderly who have uh, been able to see journeying ever closer to the end of their uh, earthly journey uh, and and expressing that constant confidence in God that the one who brought me into this life is the one who's going to take me out of this life in his time. And so that's my prayer for you too as, as, as I leave this place, that God would preserve you in that beautiful fear of his holy name, that reverence for him, that that fear of God would also then overflow from you into a life of of love and gratitude and joy and hope. Uh, May he always be, uh, as Isaiah says, your strength and your song. Uh, And may his grace to you in Christ always be your only comfort in life and death. Amen.